Hi everyone, welcome to Tapped Into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp, and with me is my friend and producer, Handsome Jason. And today we're interviewing Spencer Hawkswell, the CEO of Therasil, which is a nonprofit organization based in Victoria, BC. How are you doing, Spencer? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Fantastic, actually. So, Spencer, can you talk to me a little bit about uh, what Theracell is, uh, what the mission statement is for the organization, and what exactly it is you guys do? For sure. Um, you know, Theracell started in, in 2017 uh, with just a, a doctor, an old you know, 70, 71-year-old Bruce Tobin. Uh, he's, he's currently still on the board and, and working with us. He wanted to treat a patient um, with psilocybin use. Uh, this patient had already been using some psychedelics and the treatment was working well and he had seen the john hopkins and nyu research and just thought what the hell you know my patient has the ability to uh, access medical assistance in dying uh, access cannabis why on earth can't they access psilocybin if it's 80 percent effective for their diagnosis um and sure enough he kind of thought you know it's my my hippocratic oath is to treat people with the best tools that i know and as far as my knowledge and research goes uh if I don't fight for access for psilocybin for this person, uh, I, I'm just lying to myself. And I think that's beautiful and amazing. And so Bruce put together the, the, the name Theracil and was putting together a legal challenge. And I had read his website and literally like two days after, uh, I, I just got my car. I was in Toronto at the time and I just drove the car all the way to Victoria. Uh, he was heading down to Mexico and I was like, I have to meet face to face with this guy. Um, and sure enough, we, we just hit it off. He was like, let's go for a hike. And we just went for a hike and found a bunch of mushrooms in the forest too. And uh, it, it was just like, this guy's amazing and I want to work with him. And, and Bruce and I sat down and we put together the plans for Theracil, a, a nonprofit organization um, that would rest on four pillars. Uh, the first would be advocacy. So we'd advocate and make sure that, you know, we were putting it to that elected official, Patty Hyju at the time that for him and his patient, we needed an exemption. We needed to find a way for access. So advocacy is the first pillar. The second pillar is public education. You know, if we're going to have rights, on the other side of rights is responsibilities. And so it's a responsibility to tell people, you know, there are limits and merits uh, to psilocybin use. So that would be important. Uh, the third would be training. Uh, so training therapists, doctors, how to use psilocybin to treat patients and then research too, because, you know, if you're not following things up with research and checking whether or not you're helping or harming, um, well, it's not very smart. So we saw that as the, the four pillar mission of our nonprofit. Um, and we wanted to be as patient and healthcare practitioner centered as possible. So we decided that our board would be entirely made up of patients and doctors. Um, and that's what we did is, is we brought on patients who were using psilocybin and doctors and therapists and nurses. Uh, we put together a board um, and we had that managed by, you know, a, a team of, uh, I mean, we're all pretty young. We're all in our early twenties. Um, and once we had the whole organization together in May of, of 2020, uh, we literally were just like, let's just go full speed. Let's put together these exemptions. Uh, let's put them out to the minister. Let's put together training protocols, treatment protocols, and let's just execute on this vision of like, you know, in the next six months, we want to be treating patients. Uh, we want to be training doctors and therapists uh, and, and doing research and doing public education. Uh, and we just launched that thing. And before we knew it, we were getting $100,000 checks uh, and, and money was pouring in. And it was the right timing because there was a blooming psychedelic industry and everyone saw how important this work was. So, you know, we didn't do it without a ton of help. We had like a bunch of different companies uh, giving us funding. 
Um, and, uh, and, and because of that, within a hundred days, we got the first four exemptions and made just total Canadian history. Uh, you know, we, we by extension, we, we legalized psilocybin on August 4th, 2020, um, because at that point, uh, it, the minister made a clear statement, and that is that Canadians have the right to psilocybin. And uh, a couple months later, December 1st uh, of the same year of 2020, uh, we did the same thing for doctors and therapists. And it it really was, it was just, like, we didn't do that much work. We, we just, we showed the doctors and the patients what they needed to do. And we helped them get on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And we put them in meetings with, with ministers and politicians. We just guided them and helped them advocate and speak for themselves because the truth is no one, no one cares about Spencer Hawksworth or Bruce Tobin uh, or, or Natasha or Yaz or Holly or John, you know, our teammates, Julia. Uh, they care about the patients. They care about Thomas Hartle, Jim Doswell, Lori Brooks. They care about Dr. Val Masuda, you know, uh, Dave Phillips. They care about the people who they're supposed to help, the people who are struggling through uh, mental illness and, and the clinicians who are trying to help them. Uh, and it, it just showed that, you know, you can spend a, a billion dollars, you can spend $30 million trying to bring a drug to market, uh, or you can spend a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, and help patients get access and treatment and put them in front of a minister and both of them will legalize psilocybin. And and that's what we're, we're trying to do is just continue that forward and, and get to the end, uh, which is we want regulations. We want medical regulations for for uh, our members uh, who are patients and, and doctors uh, and it's them, they've written the regulations, that uh, they've been doing all the work since day one. Uh, so my job here is just to facilitate that and help help them make that dream possible uh, and make sure that they're not ignored. And, and really, you know, by being on this podcast, uh, this is all part of it, right? making sure that other Canadians know that uh, just like a lot of these patients and doctors, um, you know, one day they might find them in a situation where, where they need the doctor to help them get access to psilocybin, uh, you know, one thing we all got in common is we're all going to die. And hopefully for most of us that goes well, but if for any reason we have anxiety or depression and it's not going well, I won't be asking for access to a mushroom, but some people will want that, 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 that permission. And I think we've all got an obligation of Canadians to make sure that when you're dying, you get to try the mushroom. I think that's a pretty good goal. Then I've never met a person in Canada that doesn't agree with that one. So I've been following Theracil for the past year or so. And I have to admit, I feel like you guys are sort of leading the charge and advocating for patients through the SAP program and through Article 56 exemptions. And, you know, I was following quite recently that you were sort of applying for these exemptions and they were not being granted by Health Canada and so forth. And I'm just sort of wondering your perspective on this. Like, do you do you think right now that Health Canada as a whole is sort of in a position to be moving forward this adequately? Are they dragging their feet? Or do you see this as a, just a natural progression of legitimization of these substances? Uh, yeah, you know, I see Health Canada as a bureaucracy uh, that's designed to ensure that the healthcare processes, systems, regulations that we have uh, are working and are constantly being updated. Uh, but like many bureaucracies, they don't uh, usually solve new problems very well, uh, specifically when there needs to be some major changes. And I think that the you know war on drugs and changes to drug policies are changes that need to be made, which are likely too big for the bureaucracy to handle. So instead, we need to rely on elected officials. And you know this is why we have a government 
that isn't just the the different bureaucracies and institutions making changes. We actually rely on these elected officials sometimes. So different bills get introduced. You know, we have different politicians, uh, such as Justin Trudeau in Canada, uh, making the decision to legalize marijuana nationally. I mean, a bureaucracy would never do that because it's not their mandate. Right? These are people uh, working within it, keeping their heads down that have jobs to do, but not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily going to be taking creative um, and, and courageous decisions and bringing them to the higher ups. That really is the role of these elected officials. So Health Canada, uh, it's not always uh, fruitful to be chatting mm-hmm. with them or to be directing conversations to them. Instead, uh, what we need to do is focus on the two people who can actually make change here. And that is Caroline Bennett and Jean-Yves Duclos. And they are the two health ministers in Canada right now. We've got two of them. Uh, Carolyn Bennett is likely the one more in charge of this file uh, because she's been granting other Section 56s, such as the one in BC that was just passed a couple weeks ago, uh, legalizing hard drugs as of uh, January 31st. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, it, it's not Health Canada, it's the Ministers of Health uh, and the process that we're using, you know, putting patients and doctors and making this a political issue, a Canadian issue, is the right way to go about changing things. Uh, and it has been effective over the last two years. And it's going to be incredibly effective this summer, I believe. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that concept because I find anything like this has a tendency to start off with sort of grass moose momentum. And, you know, even like I've been an advocate of psychedelics for the better part of a decade. And like I said, I've been, I've been following Therosil and... One of the things I like the most about your organization, and I, th- I think we should clarify this right now because I think there's a lot of confusion when it comes down to what Theracil does. I know a lot of people that I've been speaking to about this have this you know, I- idea or illusion that Theracil itself is supplying psilocybin or th- Theracil is providing the actual therapy itself, but Theracil has taken on sort of this model of educating practitioners to actually treat patients with psilocybin and actually use psilocybin themselves so they can actually understand what is currently happening in their patients? Exactly. You know, we are a grassroots organization. I I like to think that as grassroots and patient-centered as it could possibly get. You know, our our entire organization is made up of doctors, therapists, patients, people who have been using psychedelics and want to see it uh, medicalized. And, And so that's what we're doing. You know, as an organization, who are we to uh, you know, think that that we're necessary uh, to get this this medicine out there. It's like we've already got all of the infrastructure in Canada necessary to get people access, uh, and that infrastructure is the doctors, it is the therapists, it is the nurses. If we can just legalize it, do our small part, change the laws, and allow them to go through the actual therapeutic process with their patients, uh, then we'll get all of the benefits of of psilocybin in our society. Uh, with as little possible change as necessary. Uh, and, and that's how we should all be thinking about it, is how do we do this as efficiently and effectively as possible? Well, I would say that Theracil is extremely relevant in this process. You know, I would never shortchange the value that you actually put into this. I would say that Theracil in itself has been very publicly leading sort of this vanguard towards this, providing education to the public. You know, constantly I'm reading articles about you. I've listened to podcasts about Theracil. I think what you guys are actually doing is leading the charge. And, you know, I think like some extent, the podcast that I'm doing is designed on just educating people because we are coming out of the aftermath of the war on drugs that is still raging. And I think that at some point in time, people need to step back from 
the insane amount of disinformation associated with this. Like, I'm not sure how old you are, but, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and I remember back in the 80s and 90s, you know, psilocybin makes your brain bleed. There's all these anecdotal stories about how, you know, psychedelics will make you go insane and crazy. And then, you know, the, the reality of it is, thanks to John Hopkins and Imperial College and stuff, is that, in fact, quite the opposite. The reduction of neuroinflammation, neurogenesis, neuroplasticity. And, you know, I would imagine that what Theracil is doing is probably based off of the studies done by Roland Griffiths in uh, John Hopkins. With, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our, we worked with them to get a protocol and to get the, uh, you know, our original section 56s together. Uh, they gave us all of the, the data that we needed to present to Health Canada. At the end of the day, it really didn't come down to any research. Uh, it came down to, you know, uh, our, our charter rights. Um, and, and, you know, in general, I agree with you right now we're, we're necessary, but that's unfortunate. You know, it's unfortunate that a patient who's using psilocybin already with their doctor and getting healthy and, you know, has the right to die with medical assistance in dying needs an organization uh, to lobby for them for months just in order to get the permission from the government, right? Who's already allowing them to die. Uh, and the government is just ignoring them, but that's how it works. You know, democracy is not perfect. Uh, and if we could just have a couple changes to our laws, uh, we would make ourselves obsolete um, and at least a large percentage of what you do. And then we could just move to the uh, education part, which uh, as far as anyone's concerned, that's the fun part. That's the easy part, right? Showing the success stories and, uh, and teaching people. That's that's good work. So, so Spencer, sorry, uh, Jason over here, just to jump in for a second, because um, some of our listeners may not be as well-versed as Adam or I or yourself um, as to what Schedule 56 exemption means. Can you just clarify a little bit as to why that's so important, um, especially in the space in Canada for um, pharmaceutical-grade psychedelics as being used as treatments? Absolutely. So uh, as a lobbyist, and I, I look at things from, you know, uh, say, let's say there, it's a political landscape. Um, and so when we're thinking about how we're going to get patients access to psychedelics, uh, there's multiple different ways we can go because the only thing stopping us is politics, is the law. Um, and so the traditional routes for access would be you get uh, clinical trials done. You go through your phase one, two, three clinical trials. You get a, a, a drug approved in Canada. And then it's a prescription drug. Uh, that usually costs you know uh, close to $30 million to bring a drug to market. That's probably on the low end. Um, and it also takes, you know, five to 10 years. Um, so that was one route we could have gone, uh, but that's not the route that cannabis went, uh, and nor should it be. We're talking about a mushroom here. We're not talking about, you know, a new synthetic opioid. Uh, mushrooms have been used for thousands of years. Uh, and while nothing's stopping companies from bringing a synthetic uh, psilocybin molecule to market, um, this the market's certainly against them. They can't patent it. So you know, they can't benefit from from doing that. So everything's kind of built wrong. So the other pathway, um, as of 2020, now there's three, but I'll just focus on the other one, was Section 56. And so that, again, relies on an elected official, not Health Canada, the, the power is all vested in the Minister of Health, to grant individual Canadians or any class of Canadians exemption from our drug laws for whatever reason that minister sees fit. That's literally the, the writing. For any reason the minister sees fit. And so the Minister of Health in 2000 in Canada, his name was Alan Rock, he granted the first AIDS patients access to cannabis. Uh, and that was his legacy. And, and you know, perhaps we may not know his name, but uh, if you're a politician in Canada, you know who Alan Rock is. You know what he did, right? This entire cannabis movement and perhaps even medical assistance in dying and 
you know, our, our, our decriminalization of all drugs started there. It started with an election or sorry, an elected official making a courageous decision uh, to to help patients who are in need of a drug that's been demonized and criminalized for for, you know, for generations. Uh, and the truth is, is like, you know, cannabis is legal in Canada. And the lights are on. You know, the kids aren't taking it. In fact, less children are taking it than they were before. Uh, and we've got a nice thriving industry. Um, so this section 56 is literally us asking are the top health official in Canada, if they could just exempt one person uh, from, from, from the drug laws, you know, Lori Brooks, she's, uh, she's used psilocybin before. It was the only medicine that worked. She's terminally ill minister. Don't you think we can excuse this person from the drug laws? And something that I will add to it is it does not allow that person to buy psilocybin from a producer because the purchase of drugs is underneath a separate uh, set of, uh, of drug laws called the food and drug regulations. Um, but it gives them the exemption they need. So they know they're not going to go to jail. Uh, not that they will, not that a, the courts will ever prosecute a patient, but still, you know, it's, it, it's about just getting the right legal checks and balances, the right pathways to, to give both patients and doctors the peace of mind that what they're doing is not illegal. They're not going to get sued. Uh, people won't, you know, frown at what they're doing because they have the permission. So that section 56 has been used to get about 60 patients access to psilocybin. I think the numbers were closer to 65 or 68, um, but also 19 healthcare practitioners. So doctors, therapists, uh, nurses, they were also given that exemption allowed to use that psilocybin in our training program. And we trained them to use, uh, to do psychedelic assisted psychotherapy for these patients. Um, the only problem is now is that there's a third regulatory pathway called SAP, uh, which the minister has uh, craftily uh, put on the into the hands of the bureaucracy, um, and that makes things a bit more difficult because now we can't target you know a minister. Now we're now we're kind of challenged with with targeting a bureaucracy, and there's just too many people to hide behind in a bureaucracy, right? You, so sorry, you tell a minister. Sorry, what is this uh, SAP? So this SAP stands for Special Access Program, and it's the third regulatory pathway in Canada. There are only three ways to get access to psilocybin clinical trials, Section 56, or now SAP. Um, and it's essentially uh, similar to Section 56, except a doctor is making the request uh, to use a drug. Um, any any substance uh, or, or approved psilocybin in Canada, so this is coming from uh, psilocybin manufacturers, uh, and it gives the doctor the ability to to give it to the patient. So it's kind of the opposite of Section 56, where that was more about just giving the patient an exemption from the law. They'd find their own substance. This is just giving the doctor the exemption uh, and giving them, you know, a, a substance such as a synthetic psilocybin from Cygen. They're a, a Calgary company that we've been working closely with, um, or Haven Life Sciences, or or Filament. Uh, you know, these are these are um, these are Canadian companies that, that are that are making psilocybin, and now they're actually getting it to doctors to give to patients. It's just it's all a mess. You know, we've got thousands of patients trying to get access and it's a struggle to get, you know, five patients a month access through these programs. Well, and it really is like I've read through the entire special access program on Health Canada webpage, as well as the application process. And it's, it's convoluted. It's difficult. It requires navigation. And, you know, and, and I think that was partially by design to some extent. And it's also, you know, relevant to include that MDMA is also part of the special access program right now currently. And, uh, you know, I feel like even though they add these 
these regulatory paths that people can take, it's still not easy. It's difficult. And like you were saying too, actually having people granted these exemptions are extremely difficult. Now, do you think that the precedents being set with the people before are making it easier as you progress forward? Or does it seem like this is more of a, a bureaucratic tripping hazard? Uh, you know, a bit of both. You know, it's a it's a bit of both. Some of the doctors and therapists that were helping get access to psilocybin, um, you know, they're they're doing their first exemption through SAP, and then the the additional ones are getting are getting a bit easier, um, and that's great. You know, that the Health Canada I guess trusts this doctor, and next time the doctor comes through with another patient, they're just approving them much faster. I mean, Health Canada's promised to to respond in, in 48 hours, but that doesn't always happen. We've got some patients who are waiting, you know, a couple of weeks for access to this program, which is not okay when, you know, you're palliative, when you're dying with a terminal diagnosis. Um, I'd say more of the issue and that the tripping hazard is, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of patients who need access. Uh, and this system relies on, uh, you know, doctors doing hours of paperwork uh, and, and following very, very strict, um, uh, inclusion criteria for these patients, you know, just where the research is. So it's only used for palliative patients and, and patients with uh, treatment resistant depression. But you know, what if you have PTSD? What if you have cluster headaches? What if you have addiction? Um, it doesn't seem like you're going to get access through this SAP process. Uh, so it starts to kind of fall back on, you know, section 56, we could ask for anything and the minister for whatever reason they deem necessary would, would give that access. So we had tons of patients getting it for different diagnoses and it was working amazing. Uh, but this is, you know, again, it's more strict and uh, that will be the, the death of the whole program is, you know, we're going to be supporting the patients who are being denied through a constitutional challenge. Because at the end of the day, all of this is against the constitutional or charter rights uh, to life, liberty and security of persons. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, it's all wrong. Uh, and, and the minister should have should have just moved towards regulations instead of putting this big hurdle, this SAP hurdle in front of doctors and patients. It, it does nothing but, but harm them in it. it. It wasn't built well. It wasn't designed well at all. Well, do you think that this is the government doing due diligence in a plan to sort of lay this out and then it become a regulated pharmaceutical that is available by physician prescription? Or do you think this is going to continue being bogged down and politicized continuously? Like, as far as I'm concerned, I feel like there are parallels with with cannabis and how this was sort of rolling out. Like it's different in itself; it's a different substance, and, it, and the process in which is going on is different. But you know, the eventual outcome was basically a recreational market for cannabis. And so, do you think that progressively over time, the parallels between the cannabis industry and psychedelics would be relatively similar? Yeah, for sure, they'll be similar. You know, you, in both cases, you have prescription uh, cannabinoids and, 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 and cannabis, right? Uh, do patients like that? Some of them do, like some of them don't. Some doctors like it, some don't. Uh, the same will be true for psychedelics. I mean, especially with the synthetic molecules like MDMA. Soon MDMA will be a prescription drug. Yeah. Uh, that that seems to be the way it's going. Uh, psilocybin, I think Compass and Usona both have a prescription uh, molecule too that they'll probably be putting out on the market. Uh, but, you know, because you can grow mushrooms and because we have a right in Canada... I uh, can't speak for the U.S., but in Canada, people will be able to grow their own as well, or there will be farmers growing them. And so it'll just be, you know, what do you want? Do you want the synthetic version, the drug, uh, or are you okay with the, um, you know, the psilocybin that's coming from either farmers or from these licensed producers? It's not necessarily a drug product, 
but it's, you know, in, it, in its own regulations. So psilocybin will look a lot like cannabis, MDMA, LSD, those things will look a little bit different, um, just by, by, by nature of what they are, right. Which is, uh, just synthetic substances that, you know, I don't know of anyone uh, cooking their own MDMA or LSD at home, no, nor do I think that that's a wise idea for us to put into uh, policy at this point in time. But uh, we could certainly designate a company to do that, right, for a bunch of patients. Uh, there's no reason that, you know, this organization, SciGen, that I mentioned, they're, they should be uh, making MDMA and LSD soon. Uh, there's no reason they couldn't supply MDMA and LSD, you know, to two molecules or two substances that I, I don't think can be patented. Uh, they should be able to supply those to, to Canadians and, you know, the cost should be what the cost of, of making that drug and, and, and selling it is, you know, we don't need to, to spend ridiculous amounts of money on, on pharmaceuticals that are patented. Uh, that's, that's not where the psychedelic industry seems to be heading. So Spencer, just hypothetically, cause I've heard a lot of, um, uh, vocal opposition from out in BC in terms of the way this is kind of going uh, with the schedule 56, they're talking about just decriminalizing all drugs across the board, similar to what they've done in other countries. I think Portugal kind of comes to mind uh, for me with that. Would that kind of supersede any of the um, things that your organization's currently trying to work on? Would it make, you know, this pathway a little bit easier or are there still challenges that are kind of hidden inside of that? Oh, it's, it's totally a step in the right direction. And I mean, they're done talking at this point. They just approved the Section 56 in January 2023. So in six months, you know, uh, I'll be able to walk around uh, BC with up to 2.5 grams of cocaine uh, or heroin, um, as long as I don't have more than that. And God forbid I have a beer in my hand. Like, God forbid I have psilocybin because they didn't include psilocybin. Uh, you know, they'd charge me. Uh, but as long as it's just, you know, heroin or just methamphetamine or just cocaine, I'm fine. They won't even take it away from me. Um, now, is that going to help patients who are accessing psilocybin? No. Uh, it might help us in court and it might help us convince a judge that, uh, you know, this is absolute BS and that the logical inconsistency here is is too great for uh, for our justice system to, to ignore. Um and, and certainly, you know, if we had started decriminalizing all substances, including psilocybin, it'd be a great step in the right direction because hopefully these patients could go to therapists and just say, hey, you know, I'm going to do this. Um, will you supervise? And the answer would most likely be yes. But decriminalization is great, but it's not medicalization. It doesn't help patients get medical access to things. Uh, and that's what we're talking about at Theracil is medical access. Uh, you know, you could decriminalize uh, a whole bunch of different substances, but until you start treating it more like a, a medical a medicine and, and put it into the medical system, um, then then patients, right, the people who really, really need it badly, they don't really get the help because the doctors, they don't want to touch it. The therapists, they don't want to touch it either. Safe supply doesn't exist. Um, and, and that is just something that the decrim movement is totally missing out on is we need better than decriminalization. We need legalization and regulation um, so that, you know, just because you decriminalize cocaine, for example, like they're going to be doing in BC and fentanyl and heroin, it doesn't mean we're going to have a safe supply. And I cannot stress that anymore. It's like, yes, this is a step in the right direction. Uh, but if we think this is going to stop deaths, uh, there's a huge amount of ignorance. Uh, and people just don't understand that this is a drug poisoning uh, and overdose epidemic. Legalizing it is not going to fix any of those issues. It might help end the taboo, but if we want people to stop dying at the pace that they're dying right now in BC, 
we need to have a safe supply for them. The, the heroin that they're buying cannot have fentanyl in it. Otherwise, people will continue to die. And in the U.S., it's like 100,000 people in the last couple of years. And in Canada, uh, it's thousands of people have died in the last couple of years. The pandemic's made it worse. Safe supply is a great supply to start, but uh, decrim is not safe supply. Well, there has been a precedent set for safer supply. Like in London, Jason and I are both paramedics, and we work in the downtown area dealing with addiction on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And the community in London, Ontario, actually has a safer supply where they basically prescribe hydromorphone to patients as a safe, controlled alternative to fentanyl and heroin. And it's actually extremely successful and has been sort of used as a template and guidance on Health Canada. So, you know, it seems that we are moving in the right direction. It's just, I find everything takes so long. Yeah. And a lot of the times when you're seeing it externally, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. But you were mentioning before about how you're very optimistic about next summer. I know when we kind of trailed off into a different conversation subject. So do you foresee there being significant changes over the course of the next year? Like, I, I feel like your finger is kind of on the pulse of this more so than other people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in two weeks, we're launching a legal challenge for a number of patients and doctors. So, you know, we've got 200 doctors and uh, a huge number of patients, probably a dozen patients that are going to court. Um, and and they're taking the Minister of Health to court over their denied access to psilocybin. Uh, this would be a constitutional challenge. Uh, so the government gets to decide, you know, do they want to take doctors and patients, palliative patients at that, um, to court over access to psilocybin? And that access includes a safe supply of it. Uh, it includes, you know, regulations that make it easier to access um, or would they rather just change the laws, uh, you know, the laws that they're not even enforcing anyways? Um, so we've got a winning court case uh, and and we will win. And whether it'll take a year or, or three months um, depends on the intelligence and, and compassion of our government. Um, I, I can't say which one it'll be, but, you know, by this yeah. time next year, uh, we're going to know and we'll either have regulations um, or we'll be be working towards them. Because you cannot, you know, we cannot get in the way of those of those Section Seven rights, right? Life, liberty, and security of persons. Uh, we've got all the evidence we need. Uh, we've got a court case and a legal team that's uh, nearly funded, uh, ready to take this this to the minister. Um, you know, this is just the same thing that happened with medical assistance and dying. It's the same thing that happened with cannabis. Uh, it's it's a couple of patients taking the the government to court, saying, you know, enough is enough. Give us access to our medicine. No, I think that's absolutely fantastic because it just, it has to be done. And, you know, I, I've, I've read quite a bit about the John Hopkins studies and taking, you know, larger amounts of psilocybin and having these very spiritual moments. And I've done copious amounts of psilocybin myself and I can completely understand the level of spirituality that's gained from doing five, 10, 15, 20 grams of mushrooms. Like it's deeply profound and spiritual when you have this. And I think that, from the method that you guys are using, I just want to take a little sidestep here and just understand what Theracil is specifically doing right now. So you're training practitioners to provide psilocybin-assisted therapy for individuals who are palliative, correct? Exactly, yeah. We, we've got, I think, the maybe the biggest program training program in Canada. Um, we've trained about 200 healthcare practitioners. We're on track to train another uh, two to 300 more this year. Um, and yeah, we, we teach them, you know, these are people who already have psychiatric backgrounds, right? They've got five years experience, uh, doing therapy and, and working with mental health patients. 
um, we're just giving them a couple more of the skills that they need in order to bring psilocybin into that practice. Um, and it's, you know, five day intensive uh, training program. Um, we'll continue to add on more, but, you know, at this point we, we just need a place to start because people are doing this therapy already. You know, they're already treating patients. Um, but yeah, you know, it doesn't take much. Like I was saying before, it's, it's not, we don't need as much infrastructure as we thought we did, right? Psilocybin is safe. Uh, people who have a lot of, uh, therapy background and knowledge that they, they have many of the tools that are necessary uh, to start using psilocybin in their practice. Um, of course, we just want to make sure that it's, it's done the right way and, and not the wrong way. And that we're building, you know, a community of practice around its use. Well, I, I will say that generally speaking, when you look at a pharmacopoeia for dealing with mental health, things like SSSRIs, Seroquel, you know, there's a plethora of medications that people are prescribed. But then when you go to psychedelics, it is an entirely, entirely different experience. It is a different mentality altogether when dealing with this. So is it difficult for practitioners to sort of augment and shift over to an entirely different way of looking at mental health treatment? Because I feel, and I could be entirely wrong in this, is that generally speaking, the goal for most psychiatrists is to allow people to tread water and cope with whatever psychological illness they have. Whereas to me, my experience with psilocybin and psychedelics has been you're processing your traumas, you're processing your anxieties, you're processing your fears, and it's gritty, it's grindy, it's scary, it's hard, and a lot of times it's terrifying. And so having to deal with these people, deal is a very inappropriate term, to have to allow these people to get rid and to some extent exfoliate all of this trauma from their body, you know, how? what does it look like during one of these therapy sessions? Yeah, and, and just to go back, like you're... You, you're totally on the right track here, right? Is like, you know, by virtue of, of, of the, let's say the, the stress on our healthcare system uh, and, and what's being taught in medical school, I think there's a lot of band-aid fixes and doctors know this, right? They know that a healthy person doesn't need, you know, SSRIs, uh, but you know, how do you get them there? It's like, it's therapy. And in the meantime, can we give them some SSRIs, right? Like, like since when was antidepressants, just something that's like, oh, you're depressed. The problem is you don't have enough antidepressants. We just need to give you a prescription for the rest of your life. It's like, no, there's something that's got to be fixed there. But in the meantime, let's give them antidepressants. Let's get them in therapy. There should be some goal to get them off, right? And, and you know, this is just, I think, something that's lacking in, in, our, in our society is the fact that there are, like, healthy people and we can get, like, back to healthy and, and fix them. But when your healthcare system's stressed, Sometimes the first thing to do is like, you're right, get people treading water, stop them from sinking. Uh, and then we get back to them and, and, and help them later. Um, it just doesn't seem like that's working very well. So if we can also find a way just to like cure people and start actually chipping away at the problem, giving people the tools they need so that they don't have to come back to the therapist, come back to the doctor, that, you know, that's what, that's what we should be aiming for. And I think that's where a lot of these doctors are seeing one or two of their patients accessing psilocybin using it. And I think of you know, one of the gentlemen that we helped, uh, you know, his doctor was like, okay, well, we'll see how this works. You know, this patient's been drinking. Um, you know, they've, uh, they haven't been to work in four years. They're on a whole bunch of anxiety medications and ADD medications. Um, you know, let's see what happens. And then the patient comes back and they're like, yeah, I haven't had a drink since my session. 
Uh, I'm off all of my anxiety medications and I don't have any anxiety anymore. Uh, and I'm back at work. And the doctor goes, I want more of my patients to have what he had, please. Uh, because he's not a patient anymore, right? Yeah. Instead of seeing him every, every couple, couple weeks or months, uh, you know, call me when you need me, but otherwise, uh, that patient's fine. And, and many of the other things that they were dealing with, the comorbidities are gone too. Uh, so in some aspects, we've got the easiest job in the world. It's like, you know, seeing is believing in a lot of these docs that start off with one of their patients being supported through this, then they bring it to some of the other patients. Um, and, and then these docs are essentially coming to us going, Hey, have you got any more patients? I've got no work. Uh, you know, I can help more, more people. Um, and I don't think people understand how important that is, right? How important it is uh, to have a shortage of, of patients, uh, because not that these docs have a shortage of patients, there's always more, uh, but at least they're looking for them. And that's something we should be striving for, uh, is, is getting patients uh, the help that they need, the fix that they really need, resolving that trauma, because with it goes a lot of the other com comorbidities and issues that they have. Um, so that is a shift that we're seeing. It's not just giving them more medication, having them come back and changing the medications. It's like giving them one pill, psilocybin, uh, and seeing many of the the problems that they have go away and doctors see that they love it. It's, it makes this education piece very easy. Now, Spencer, kind of speaking along that, um, you're speaking a lot about physicians or primary care physicians and psychiatrists. Have you noticed that there was more of a propensity for, um, uh, psychologists to lean more towards, um, psilocybin or psychedelic therapies than physicians? And have you noticed that that switch has now come more, to the hard sciences with uh, physicians as primary care providers advocating for this use um, long-term in their patients. And yeah. what does that kind of look like? How has that been shaped? Well, let's just like, let's just make an observation is that, you know, in the last four years, five years in Canada, that physicians, even family doctors have realized that they're, they're missing out, right? They're missing out on something. And that is the, the psyche, right? They're, they're missing out on mental health. Uh, they they want to be more engaged with therapists, with psychologists, like psychiatrists. They want to help their patients, you know, up here because it usually translates into many of the sicknesses that they have. And there's been a major shift happening. Uh, and because I guess we're working with psychedelics, a lot of the doctors that come to us uh, because we're not really reaching out to them, they're coming to us. They already know that. They know that that they're interested in in healing their the, the psychological side of their patient and that that's what psilocybin is for, right? Psilocybin is in shrinking tumors. It's not helping bones heal or, I mean, maybe it is. I can't say that it's not, but uh, not that we know of right now. It's, it's really just helping patients get into a mindset where maybe some of that other healing is a little easier. So I think the patients we have, a palliative care doctor knows that like the, the patient has end-of-life distress. They're scared shitless, right? Of, of dying. And, and it's, it's, it's not good. They need to fix that before they can go on to, to other treatments, before that patient can worry about chemo, before they can worry about all the other treatments. You've got to help deal with fear, depression, anxiety. Um, and so those doctors have worked incredibly well with the therapists, uh, with the psychologists and psychiatrists um, who, who we work with, who are you know helping those docs determine uh, what checks and balances there are before a patient accesses psilocybin. Uh, but those docs, right, they, even the ones without much experience in, in, in the more psych, in, in the psyche, um, they're interested. They want to know more. 
Um, and, and there's, it's, it's perpetuating this shift, um, away from just the, the physiological towards the psychological as well. And I think that's good. I think that's, that's really, really good because, uh, so often people are treated like a body instead of a body, mind and spirit. Well, and I 100% agree with that concept. Like to me, the idea of the way we treat people in Western medicine is that you have your body with your physical elements and then somehow over here convoluted is your, your mental health. And to me, there's, there's no fundamental difference. Like if I'm constantly stressed out and anxious, I'm having cortisol releases, I'm having chronic inflation throughout my entire body. There's cancer risk, heart disease. You know, like it's just, it's, it's almost insane the amount of collateral damage that occurs on your body with prolonged stress. And I, I can even completely attest to that. Like I started doing psychedelics about 10 years ago and I've been a paramedic for 18 years and just being cr- chronically stressed and anxious all the time. And I had back pain. I, my wounds didn't heal exceptionally fast. There was a whole plethora of things going on with me. And then, you know, I just started engaging in psychedelics just because some part of me recognized the benefits of them. And as I just started going through this and alleviating traumas, like it's, it's amazing how fundamentally better one can feel. And then you go back to the idea about, you know, having someone who's, you know, is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer or something. And that fear of our own mortality becomes very apparent in them. And let's be realistic. We're all terrified of death on some level, but when it's thrust in front of you, that's something you just can't let go of. And then being able to alleviate that stress and have some sense of spirituality with that would very likely actually allow people to fight off the cancer and recover from the chemotherapy itself. And so one of the questions I want to ask is that what is occurring during these therapy sessions that allows people to alleviate their fear of death? And I I know that that's a difficult question to ask because trying to explain a psychedelic experience is let's just use an analogy, you know, and it's, it's a simple one. It's, it's corny, but it's like, you know, people are not computers, but our minds operate a bit like them and they have software and that software, right. Is, is the way we, we look at life, the way we perceive it, the way we, we, we move through it. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's this controlling of order and chaos, right. And, and the world is chaos and, and we are order. And when you have a software system that is not positive and, and, full of contradictions, uh, good luck, you know, good luck trying to explore the world. And so, you know, the reason we think of spirituality so much into this and religion is like religion gives some people the tools that they need to have a positive and non-contradictory outlook of the world. But it's not just that too. It's like, they need to be socialized well as well. You know, they need to be educated. Um, and so, you know, you can still have people who are well-educated and socialized and who were happy before, but all of a sudden, Right. Their, their interpretation of the world and its meaning is totally up, upended. Right. They're dying. Um, you know, they, maybe they, they didn't do the things that they wanted to in life and now they're anxious and, and everything that they think of, you know, the, the hanging, hanging out with family, everything's rife with contradictions and it's negative. Uh, and, you know, you want to say to them, just be happy. You know, you've got, you've had an amazing life and you've got a couple, you know, years left and, and, you know, you've got a beautiful family around you and, and they just can't be happy. They can't and, and they're anxious um, and they do psilocybin and like a computer it resets and uh, and it, it really it allows their software. It might not change it completely, but it fixes some of the contradictions. It, it, it makes it more positive. And 
I can just say that in the 60 plus treatments uh, that have happened and, and stories that we've heard from, from so many patients, uh, it's all different. Every experience they have, some of them see space Jesus. You know, some of them yeah. are just see their family or their, their, their loved ones. Some of them see the demon that's been hanging over them for years and they call it out, right? And they tell it they're not afraid of it anymore. And it fixes whatever, whatever thing, right, was, was keeping them from, from seeing the truth of their reality, right? From seeing, the, you know, the truth that they, they actually have a lot of autonomy in life uh, and that it's not contradictory and that life is positive and beautiful. It allows them to see that. And I don't think there's much sense in trying to be too scientific and say anything other than that, at least at this point, because we just don't understand it. it you know, who understands it? In my opinion, the folks who have taken psychedelics. And it's not something that you can just tell someone else. It's like, you got to experience it. Uh, and then you'll understand because I've, I've done it too. And, and, you know, problems that I had in my life, it's just like, fuck, it's so obvious. It's so obvious what I need to do to make myself happy, you know, with this relationship that I have with my, my girlfriend or something like that. It's so obvious. And before it was just negative, everything was negative there. And I wasn't thinking about it right. Uh, and I can't tell anyone why or what changed. I just know that it did. Um, and, and that's that. So, uh, you know, as far as the project, what we're working on, uh, like government, it's none of your business how, why this is working, how it's working. It's like, screw off, you know, it's working. Help people get access. It's their right to have it. Um, and, and you know, listen to the people who it's working for and and maybe you'll get a good idea. But uh, we got a lot more research to do to figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, no matter how much reader who you hear it from, it's it's always different and it's all, but it's also always a bit the same. So that's the, the best way I can say that it's it's happening and, and the doctors and therapists, they don't particularly care either. They just, they see a patient doing it, something changes, and all of a sudden the therapy that we're doing is like, is easy, it's a breeze. No, oh, man, that was actually a perfect explanation. I very much appreciate that because, you know, I, I find a lot of people are like, oh, what's what's a psilocybin trip like? What's DMT like? What's doing 5-MeO-DMT like? And these, these things lack explanations. But, you know, like like you were saying before too, and I feel like I can kind of empathize with this, is that you never really know what's wrong with you until you have a contrast where you can just objectively view yourself and realize that you're toxic. Yeah. There's little poisonous spots inside you that need to be removed and they need to be dealt with. And one of the questions I want to ask you is, so if, if basically the protocols you set up parallel what John Hopkins is doing, so is the amounts that people are using of synthetic psilocybin during these experiences like I know John Hopkins was doing about 30 milligrams of psilocybin, which is roughly the equivalent of three grams of psilocybin cubensis. Is that sort of the standpoint or benchmark for these therapy sessions? Or is it I subjective mean, to the individual prescriber? So, so subjective. And it's, again, one of those things like, you know, a researcher, a doctor might like want to wring my neck out for saying it, but like, it doesn't matter too, right? Like we've got some patients that are doing... Um, you know, three grams of mushrooms, then they'll take another gram and then another gram, some that start off with seven grams of mushrooms, some that start off with five grams of mushrooms, others that are using the synthetic now, and it's 25 milligrams for them. And they're saying, well, it was a bit different than the mushrooms. And I like the mushrooms more, or I like the synthetic more. And it's like cannabis, uh, you know, not like other pharmaceuticals, a lot more like cannabis, where uh, these patients and people are just like figuring out for themselves. And they're starting off with uh, micro or 
as I say, mini doses, um, because even the microdose is like, what is a microdose? Like that, that would entail very, very small amounts. More people are actually doing mini doses where they actually feel something. Uh, and, and maybe that's more closer to like, you know, half a gram or a gram or, uh, you know, 10 milligrams or five milligrams, not quite like one or two milligrams. Um, so it's so different with everybody. Um, and the more they use it, the more they find what works for them. And so one group of patients that I'll just tell you about our clients on our side um, are uh, people with cluster headaches. And wow, these are incredible stories, you know, cluster headaches, otherwise known as suicide headaches, uh, a bit more grim term for them, but nonetheless accurate. Um, you know, this is a, a, a disease um, that uh, seems to target the vagus nerve or some nervous system. Um, and it's so painful. Uh, some people say it's the most painful condition known, known to us. Um, it causes people to quite literally tear their eyes out and, uh, and causes suicide a lot of the times too, because it's so painful. Uh, and these, these, these headaches that they're not really headaches. It's more like the nerve acting up or these clusters, they call it can happen sometimes multiple times a day. Um, and people live in constant fear and agony of just, you know, falling into this, the worst pain you could ever imagine. Um, and what works? Psilocybin. God knows why, what we don't know why uh, for some people it's, you know, a gram every two weeks for other people. It's a little bit every day for one person. It's up to 50 grams a day. Well, well, it's, well, it's really hitting them. We don't know why we don't know what's happening. It doesn't matter though. Is it working for them? Yes. Amazing. How much? So I'm sorry. It doesn't matter. 50 grams. I've in a single city, my wife and I each consume 42 grams of dried psilocybin mushroom. And it was an absolute, complete ego death to a point of non-existence and everything. So you that have, sounds awesome. And, and, <laughs> it, oh, I, like it was indescribable, completely. Like it was, it was wild. So you have individuals doing fifty grams of mushroom because I thought forty-two grams was rather, rather impressive. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I, we were just at a conference uh, yesterday here in Victoria, and you know, there were some people that were talking about their their LSD use and their you know psilocybin use and it just hits people differently, right? We don't, we don't know why, but there's some people who need to do, you know, ridiculous amounts of cannabis, like, like a thousand milligrams. Uh, and, and the same goes for their LSD use and their psilocybin use. We just don't know for whatever reason, you know, this person has cluster headaches uh, or, or something similar like trigeminal neuralgia. Um, and they also have a general intolerant or tolerance to, to psychedelics. So, you know, for someone else with that condition, maybe one or two grams is good, but because they have this tolerance, they need up to 50 grams. Um, so how expensive is 50 grams of psilocybin? Quite expensive, uh, especially to do every day. So wouldn't it be amazing if we could get that person, you know, the equivalent of 50 grams of synthetic, which is like not that much, right? It's a little tiny bit, or maybe LSD works better for them. Uh, again, it's like, if we think we can solve this problem and that it's okay to criminalize people and stop them from accessing their mushrooms because our drug laws are so inflexible that it can't allow a doctor, right, to be the, the one that decides when these substances are right or wrong, uh, then we've got something else coming. Because if we think the minister is the better person uh, and the minister is not even willing to enforce the laws, like we're just creating all of this unnecessary bureaucracy uh, that is going to hurt people and do nothing for, for what the drug laws purport to do. Well, I think that's part of the issue, too, is deferring to people who are not medically trained to make the decisions for people who are medically trained. And I find that nauseating, and I feel like that is just a continuation of the 
of a, of a pattern that we've been seeing for decades. But sorry, one other question I wanted to ask you, I think we're coming up to a finality here, but has have you guys ever considered two other psychedelic substances? Like I know that right now psilocybin because of the special access program, because of the visibility of the public, but has things like LSD, 5-MeO-DMT, because, you know, as far as I, I like 5-MeO-DMT, I think it's quite possibly one of the most profound experiences a conscious organism can have. And when it comes down to alleviating like I, I have died before. I was electrocuted to death several years ago and I was dead for about 11 and a half minutes and had a profound endogenous DMT wow. experience that was deeply, deeply moving to me. And it, it was very literally very reminiscent of a full-blown 5-MeO-DMT experience. And so, wow. you know, yeah, you should actually listen to the first podcast. It's pretty wild. I will. And, and so one of the things I'm asking though is that different psychedelics to me as my subjective interpretation because I've done a lot of different types of psychedelics is that they do different things, different experiences, they target different parts of you. Do you guys as Therosil plan on, as legislation permits, going and working with different types of psychedelics or are you just sort of focusing on psilocybin now because this, you know, you can't spread yourself too thin like concept? Yeah, exactly. Like, it, you know, right now psilocybin is, is on track to be legalized. We're it's it's so clear it's so obvious you know we've got the rights everything it's uh the the public uh isn't afraid of it there's no taboo there it's 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 safe it grows on the ground right um you know i don't think we have any toads up here in uh in canada but we do have a lot of psilocybin mushrooms um and and so yeah it makes the most sense now the program that we're running the project I mean, it would be great to run the same project for, for other medicines that people are using, um, such as DMT or, or LSD. I mean, I know a gentleman who got himself off of heroin with DMT. Um, it's just these things cost so much money and they take so much time. So, you know, if someone wants to legalize DMT, it's like, sure, if you're willing to write a check, we'll, we'll get the project going. And I'm sure we could, we could emulate this and, and have it running right now. Um, but Right now, it's like our team and the funding we have is, is totally maxed out just on the psilocybin issue. And, and that's a shame, too, because like I'm sure there's so many people who really deserve to have their access to LSD and, and to DMT um, and other substances. But these things are, diffi are difficult. They're expensive. And, and we really have a challenge, as is fundraising the necessary money uh, to keep our, our project running and to legalize psilocybin. So it, it's crummy, but... I understand like things do come back down to, you know, is there enough time and funds to get these projects going? So Spencer, uh, since we're talking about the project and the funding and everything there, um, where can our listeners find out more about what you guys do at Theracil um, and how they can support your project? So they can head to theracil.ca. That's T-H-E-R-A-P-S-I-L, like therapeutic psilocybin, psilocybin with a P. Um, uh, so confusing name, but nonetheless head to our website. Um, and yeah, you know, right now we're trying to fundraise uh, about a million dollars for a charter challenge. Um, and that's a lot of money, uh, but we are confident that, you know, Canadians can come together and, and, and that we'll be able to find funding both from the public and from philanthropists and different organizations. I mean, it, it feels kind of difficult sometimes to communicate it, but like if we could just have a regulatory system in Canada, like we have for cannabis, uh, all of the companies, all of all of the people who who want access, like it's it's it'll be a total game changer. It'll be amazing for the economy. There will be a, a blooming industry of of access and training and use. 
um, we need regulations and we just hope that the energy that's been put forward to fundraise billions of dollars for the psychedelic, you know, so-called psychedelic industry that we might be able to find a way to get a million bucks to legalize psilocybin mushrooms. Um, but that really just starts with everyone. And, you know, if, if we could have, for example, the listeners of this podcast, even just, you know, let's say you got like a thousand listeners on the podcast, uh, I'll give a hundred bucks, uh, you know, that would be the most amazing start ever. Um, hey, I'll give a hundred bucks. Jason, hell yeah. I mean, yeah, man, not, I'm right? flat out. Like, you know what? I love this conversation. Spencer, you're fantastic. And, and flat out, I will say is that when psilocybin is legalized, it will be a great part to the work that you're doing. And you can be as humble as you want about that. And that's entirely fine. But good for you, man. Because I have been following this and the legal challenges and the advocacy that you're doing for patients. And I am enamored with your organization. So thank you very much for the work that you've been doing. I appreciate that immensely. Awesome. Well, thank you both for, for giving me and, and the organization and by extension, the patients and doctors, a platform as well. We, we really appreciate that. I was going to say, and thank you for, for attending our podcast today, Spencer. Oh, this was great. This was, this was fantastic and happy to come back anytime. Awesome. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Spencer.